Great to be with you this morning. My name is Guy. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at the church. And my favorite Christmas tradition, my wife, every Christmas, makes the most amazing cinnamon rolls. And I'm telling you, it's like, it's like it fell from heaven. You get up and the smell fills the house and it's just so, you know, maybe it's a foretaste of that meal to come in the presence of God at, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. I don't know. Is that, is that too much to say? I don't know. I feel that way. So uh, it's good to be with you. We're going to open the Bible. So raise your hand if you need a Bible. Ushers will give you one. And once you find that uh, Bible, we're going to open up to Luke chapter 12. Uh, Ever since getting back from Egypt, I have people every Sunday ask me, so how was that Egypt trip? And I say, well, Adam shared a bunch of our stories. And so maybe you heard that sermon. Like, no, we want to hear something from you as well. So I will talk a little bit about Egypt today. And yes, we did take a day and we went and we saw the pyramids. How many people have seen the pyramids here? So actually quite a few. They are amazing. The pyramids are amazing. And for those who have a sense of history, Uh, This goes back, the earliest pyramids were built at least 4,000 years ago. So if you want to do the timeline, you think about it, Christ, 2,000 years ago, so as much distance before Christ as up until this moment on the other side of Christ. And that's a long time. That's just, that's mind-boggling amount of time. And actually, the largest pyramid that we saw in Giza was, for 3,000 years, the largest structure ever built on the earth. So if you think about that, that's 2,000 years before Christ, but up until the Middle Ages, there was no structure that had ever been built that surpassed it in size. So it's really, it's really incredible to see. But here's the thing. When I came back from Egypt... I wasn't thinking about the pyramids. I spent no time after I got back really thinking about the pyramids. What I did think about was the Christians that I met there. The thing that made the biggest impact on my life was the people and specifically the Christians faithfully serving the Lord. And this always happens when we go to other parts of the world and we meet faithful Christian servants who sort of marvel at their faith and their dedication. There was a pastor in Cairo named Taufik, and we went to his church. I was able to preach in his church uh, at night church. And so we went there at night, and, you know, we're winding our way through the streets of Cairo, and uh, we're walking, you know, many blocks, and we ended up sort of taking a turn down a darkened road and then another turn in what I would call an alley, but it's just a very narrow street, and it's very dark. So we're walking down this, this dark street, and at the end of the street, really at the end, it's like a dead end, there's a church there. And they've sort of taken over this warehouse building and turned it into a church. And I said, you know, this is kind of weird, like this church, why is it way down at the end of this darkened street? And Camille answered and said, well, actually, it's better because it's safer. It's safer here. Now, you know, that's, we don't think that way, do we, here in the U.S.? We don't go to a church and go, well, it's actually safer that it's in that location. But in Egypt, this is the reality of Christians. 
I, Egypt is about 10%, I think, at least Christian, but that's a great minority. And in Egypt, in that Christian minority, the Christians have learned to live in an atmosphere where there is danger. And so that in and of itself is, is a unique experience, to sort of feel that and to live that, but then to watch the Christians within that context live out their faith, gather together for worship, be filled with joy, open the scriptures, praise God in worship. I mean, that's a fantastic experience. So I'm going to come back and talk a little bit more about some of the Christians in Egypt a little bit later in the service. But right now we're going to go to Luke chapter 12. So um, I have a passage in Luke chapter 12, but what I want to do before I get to that passage is I want to share with you my favorite verse from Luke chapter 12. Now here's the thing. Luke chapter 12 is a chapter that has a lot of intense things in it. A lot of very challenging things are in this chapter. I mean, we've already had in this chapter warning about hypocrisy, and it opened with that. We've had a warning about greed, covetousness in the chapter as well. We have uh, talk about finances. That's been kind of tough in this chapter. And later in the chapter, we're going to find a passage that includes beatings and family divisions. One person set against another in a household. Pastor Christopher, as only Pastor Christopher can teased me. And he said, it's kind of ironic that right after Thanksgiving and before Christmas, we have a passage that has beatings and family division in it. So, but that's chapter 12 of, of Luke. And it's very, very intense. And in the set right in the middle of all of that intensity, there's one verse. It's like a shining gem. And it's my favorite verse in Luke and one of my favorite in the Bible. Here it is. It's in chapter 12. And in verse 32, listen to this. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. All right, now let's just pause for a minute. We've had hypocrisy, greed, family division, beatings. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of challenging stuff going on in this chapter. And then, right in the middle of all that, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's a favorite verse because it's a verse that is so filled with words of gospel grace. When I read this verse, I'm reminded of so many gospel themes. I'm reminded that Jesus called himself the good shepherd. He says, fear not, little flock. And you know what? Those disciples, that's his flock. And Jesus is the good shepherd. And Jesus said, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And how precious is that? I love this view. It reminds me that I am his sheep. I'm okay with that. You know, Jesus said that the good shepherd... He says, I know my sheep by name. How cool is that? He knows your name. Pastor Adam told us a few weeks ago, he knows every hair on our head. <laughs> it's true, but even better, he knows your name. And he calls you by name. And he cares about you. These are great words of gospel 
grace. But then what about this? Fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And now I have another gospel theme. And that gospel theme is the kingdom of God. And Jesus is the king. So not only is Jesus my good shepherd, but Jesus is the king of kings and Lord of lords. And he's come to bring his kingdom into this broken world. And you know what's amazing? You and I, we get to be a part of that kingdom. It's your father's good pleasure to give you that kingdom. It's a gift. It's a gift of God's grace. You cannot earn it. You don't deserve it. But it's a gift to give you the kingdom. Isn't that beautiful? That is a fantastic verse. But as I read on just past verse 32, I'm also reminded that challenges come along with gospel grace. And so let's look at it, verse 33. Right after he says that amazing verse, he says, sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with treasures in the heavens that do not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I'm reminded in this passage that comforting words of gospel grace and pointed words of gospel challenge appear side by side in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are two dimensions to the words of Christ in the gospel. One dimension is the dimension of comfort, gracious gospel words of comfort. Another dimension is the dimension of challenge. Go, sell everything you have. Wow, that's a challenging one. Two dimensions. Now listen, in the true gospel, these two dimensions must always go together. You can never separate them, though people often do. If you separate those two dimensions, you no longer have the true gospel. If you hear a gospel, and that gospel is only gracious words of Christ's comfort, and you hear nothing else, that's not the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Something's been left out. If you hear the gospel, and that gospel is only words of pointed challenge of what you need to do as a follower of Christ, that's not the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it's the two blended together that give us the reality of the gospel, and that's what we get in the gospel of Luke. Now, you may notice, if you're paying attention, we're going very slowly through the gospel, but you have to get the big picture and remember where Jesus is going. He's headed to Jerusalem. He's headed to the cross. Now, we have several chapters of Jesus traveling along the road. He's on the way. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to the cross. And the Bible tells us at the beginning of chapter 12 that there are literally thousands of people who are attending him. So much so that people are, are like crushing each other. They're trampling each other. This great crowd. Everywhere Jesus goes, a crowd shows up. And who's in that crowd? 
Well, the disciples are in the crowd, for sure. But who else is in that crowd? Well, evidently Pharisees are there because he calls out the Pharisees, right? Pharisees are there. There's just curious onlookers that are there. There's people that are like, hey, I heard something's happening here, and they came down. They're curious onlookers. What we might call seekers are there, spiritual seekers. They have interest, but not commitment. Critics are there, no doubt, not just Pharisees, others who have come to stand in the distance and just kind of watch, be a critic. All those people are there. And do you know what? All of these conversations that Jesus is having, they're designed for every one of those people. Everybody is supposed to overhear these conversations. It's by design. And we're supposed to overhear them too. We're listening in. We're traveling along with Jesus and we're, we have a seat there and we're watching Jesus and we're listening to all these things. And I realized that even in our own church, we have all these different categories of people. We have disciples. We have followers of Jesus who are trying to figure out how do I really do that well. We have critics, no doubt. I know that because I sat in church for two years before I became a Christian in the back row as a critic. I showed up as a critic, and two years later, I left as a Christian. (laughs) But in that process, there I was on a Sunday morning worship service, right? We have seekers here. We have people that are here that are like, I I don't really know. I'm just kind of interested. Well, welcome to River West Church. (laughs) You're all welcome. But you know what? These words of Christ, they're for all of us. And that includes words of gospel grace and words of gospel challenge because we want to understand the true gospel of Christ. And so this morning, I want to approach our study by asking three questions. I'm going to ask three questions of the text, or maybe I should say three questions of ourselves in order to get at this. And question number one is this. Have you heard God's word of gospel grace for your life in Christ? Have you heard it? The gospel is filled with words of grace. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Man, what a precious word of grace. Have you heard God's word of grace in Christ for your life? And, and I would say, if not, why not? Why haven't you heard? It may be that you're not listening for that. It may be that you've come to church because you're, you're looking at tips for living, you know, tips to improve your life. Okay, you can get some of those at church, but that's really not the purpose of the gospel. And it's not the purpose of church. What we really want to hear is listen for God's word of grace spoken to us. He, he wants to call you by name. You should come every week and you should say, Lord, speak to me your word of grace. But maybe also you haven't heard because you think it's not for you. You think it's for someone else. You hear these words and you go, that, that word isn't for me. You know, later in, in our passage, Peter's going to ask, Lord, are you talking to us or are you talking to somebody else? Maybe you think, that doesn't apply to me. That doesn't apply to me. That doesn't apply to me. But I want you to know that all of this applies to you. Every word of gospel grace is spoken for 
your life. So that's question number one. Are you listening for that word of gospel grace? And now we're going to come to question two. But before I do that, I should read the passage. So we're going to go from verse 35 down to 48. We have a lot of verses to read in a short time. Because why? Those cute kids stole all my time, but that's okay. (laughs) Chapter 12, verse 35. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all of us? Peter's like, who are you talking to, by the way? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour that he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. And everyone to whom much was given of him will much be required. And from him to whom they entrust much, they will demand much. You see what I'm seeing about chapter 12? It's a very challenging passage, isn't it? Here's question number two to help us understand this passage. Write this one down and think about it. Do you have a vision of your ultimate future that impacts the way you live your life in the immediate present? Do you have a vision of your ultimate future that impacts the way you live right here and right now? Now, the theme of the passage is pretty easy to see. The main theme of the passage is the absolute certainty of the return of Christ. That's the theme. So I could have put the question like this, are you ready for Christ to return? That'd be a simpler way to say it. Are you ready for Christ to return? I saw a bumper sticker once in a car and it said, Jesus is coming soon, look busy. I could have said, are you ready? But I thought I'd expand that a little bit and say, do you have a vision 
for your ultimate future that actually impacts the way that you live right here and right now in the moment. This passage talks about the certainty of Christ's return, the uncertainty of the timing of that return, and the radical hope of our life with him, which we're going to look at in a minute. Now, this is a passage, it would have been very easy for people in that culture to get this because they understood if you have a wealthy man and he has a house and he has a lot of stuff in his house and he has servants that work in the house, And he goes off and he's going off to a wedding feast. It's going to be a late night. And the servant's job is to like guard the door and to keep everything ready for the master when he comes home. And he says, hey, I want you dressed, alert, awake. Get those lamps burning. No electricity. You got to keep the lamp, you know, keep the oil in the lamp. Make sure that it's burning, right? I want to come home and I want you guys to be ready for me. Now, it might be 12 o'clock at night. It's going to be a big party. It could be 2 o'clock in the morning. But I want you to be dressed, alert, awake, light shining, ready for my return. Everybody could understand this kind of an illustration, and it would resonate with them. But the theme of the teaching is the certain return of Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. When the Son of Man returns, what is that? The second coming of Christ. When Jesus returns as King of kings and Lord of lords, it is the ultimate end point of human history in this broken world. It's a big moment. Jesus isn't returning for a little spot check on our work. You know, it's not like the boss stopping in, you know, the boss doesn't come. He comes once a week. Everybody knows when the boss shows up. And, you know, as soon as the boss is going to come, everyone gets busy. Boss leaves. They go sit down, get, pull out the phone, you know, start. This isn't a spot check from Jesus on our work. This is the ultimate end of all things in a broken world and the beginning of a new world. It's the return of Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. But here's an amazing twist that is unexpected. You have to pay attention to this one. Look at it in verse 37 of chapter 12. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and he will serve them. It's an unexpected twist. Now, you got to realize how weird this would sound to these people. They get the master coming home. They get the fact that they're servants who have a job you know, guard the door, let him in when he comes, make sure everything's ready. They get all that. What they don't get is the master walking through the door and saying, you know what? You guys sit down at the table. I'm going to serve you. And the master goes and he begins to bring out a great feast and lay it on the table. Jesus said at the Last Supper, who's greater? The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? And everybody knows, well... The one who reclines at the table, 
Jesus said, yet I have been in your midst as one who serves. He says, think about that. And now this language of a feast and of someone serving and someone reclining, it's a biblical image that runs throughout the scripture. And it's jarring to them to hear this and to wrap their head around it because to recline is the place of honor. And Jesus says, my servants will sit at the place of honor and receive a feast that will literally blow their mind. It's a picture that runs throughout the Bible. I could go back to the book of Isaiah. In fact, I will. I've got a Bible right here. Isaiah chapter 25. Listen to this. 700 years before the coming of Christ, here's the way the prophet spoke of the return of Christ. It's in Isaiah 25 and verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all nations and swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. Those words, think about those words. Those words project all the way to the gospel of Jesus Christ and beyond it to the book of Revelation where it says, blessed are those who are called to the marriage feast of the Lamb. What's your vision of your ultimate future? Do you see yourself at that table? Can you picture that moment? You know, I, I started by talking about marine cinnamon rolls. And so, and, and man, they really are good. I'm telling you, I'm so sorry that you guys can't <laughs> share in this with me, but they're really that good, right? It reminds me of something. It reminds me that the very best experience you've ever had in this life the very finest meal, the greatest pleasure and joy is like the faintest, faintest shadow of the reality that we'll experience at the return of Christ when we sit at that table. That's the vision that he wants us to live with. But here's something I can guarantee you. Your vision of your ultimate future is going to impact the way that you live right here in the moment. This is a gospel twist on the idea of living in the moment. The Christian lives with both feet firmly planted in this moment and both eyes fixed on that moment. And in the meeting of those two things, a transformation happens because Everybody lives from a vision of their ultimate future. So here's what's weird. We went and we saw the pyramids. I have a, I have a photo of a pyramid, and it's hard. You cannot get the perspective uh, on this. I mean, that's with my phone. But you can see in there, see those little dots at the bottom? <laughs> I don't know if you can see them, but those are people, right? And it's like they look like ants crawling around. And there's this huge pyramid. And then you learn, okay, what are the pyramids? Well, the pyramids are basically burial tombs for the pharaohs. That's what they are. It's like a tomb for the pharaohs. And they would build them, take them 30 years to build one of these things. And I guess the bigger the pharaoh, the bigger the, the tomb that you get. 
And there's a chamber on the inside of that tomb. And in the chamber, they put all their stuff. They packed it with their stuff. Now, robbers, you know, Jesus said, don't store up things where robbers can break in and steal. Well, robbers broke in and stole everything except King Tut's treasure. You know the, the story of King Tut? So King Tut, his tomb was buried under drifting sand for over 3,000 years until on November 4th, 1922, a British archaeologist was in the Valley of the Kings and he looked down and the, he, you know, the sand kind of went like this and he said, that looks like a step. So he, you know, he goes, that is a step. Dig it out. There's another step. And he realized that he was standing on top of a buried tomb. It took him a month, and they excavated this tomb, and it was over 3,000 years old. It was a tomb that had never been touched. And when they went into the tomb, they found, this is the stuff that they found on the inside, just a small portion of it. They found over 5,000 objects in that tomb. They found clothing, all kinds, even fresh underwear. They found chariots. They found weapons. They found utensils to eat with. They found seeds to plant crops. Amazing, all this stuff, why? Why is that stuff in there? Because their view of their ultimate future was when they die, there is an afterlife, but nothing is provided for you. And because nothing is provided for you, this is the goal of life. The goal of life is to acquire as much stuff as you possibly can and then take it with you when you die. <laughs> Get as much stuff as you can, pack it into your tomb, and then you'll have stuff to use in the afterlife. That's their view. And so what they did in life was based on their view of their ultimate future. Well, nothing could be further from what we see going on in our lives today. Because now our view of life and our ultimate future is to get as much stuff as you can and enjoy it now because there is no future. Or if there is, we just don't know. It's a big question mark. And so we live in a carpe diem reality. Seize the day. Seize the moment. Live in the moment right now as if this is your only moment. That's actually a philosophy of the American way of life. Live in the moment and squeeze all the marrow out of life today because after that, you just don't know. It's probably nothing. The biblical framework is 100% opposite than that. The biblical framework says that we will sit at the table, the marriage supper of the lamb, and we will be provided with the richest, most awesome experience that you can even imagine. What is your vision of your ultimate future? Now, when we start talking about the second coming of Christ, a lot of people just kind of look at me like, what? How do we get there? The disciples did the same thing. Think about it. They had a lot to think about. Jesus had just told them, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified. They're like, what? We don't really understand. And then on the third day, I'll be raised up from the dead. And they're like, well, we don't understand that either. We don't get that. And he says, well, not only that, then at the end of time, I'm coming back and you better be ready. And they're like, uh, we don't even get, what are you talking about, right? All of these major doctrines of the Christian faith are woven into this trip 
where Jesus goes to Jerusalem and we are supposed to overhear the conversation because this is what we live from. The death of Christ for our sins, his resurrection as King of kings and Lord of lords and his guaranteed return in the creation of a new heavens and a new world in which we get to live with him forever. If you believe that, it'll change the way you live right here and right now. That's what this passage is about. And so let me ask you a question. Do you have a vision of your ultimate future that impacts the way you live today, the decisions you make today? Let's read on, and I'll give you one more question. In verse 41, Peter says, Lord, are you talking to us? Who are you talking to? And Jesus just ignored him. Don't you just love that Jesus ignored him? He just blew past, he's like, whatever, Peter. I'm not even going to, I'm not going to dignify that with an answer. The Lord says, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. Here's my final question. Have you answered Christ's call to serve him by serving others? Because that's what it means to be ready. He's like, who are you talking to? He says, let me tell you one more thing, Peter. Obviously, I'm talking to you and everybody because I'm not even going to answer that. Lots of people are overhearing this. Here's what I want you to know. A steward has important work to do. He changes the image now just from a servant to a steward. A steward is someone who's put in charge of basically all the provisions, all the stuff that that the master has. And his responsibility is to take care of everybody, take care of the household, take care of others. Blessed is the one who the master finds doing that when he returns. Here's the question. How do you get ready? And the answer is not by getting your time chart out and going, you know, this is when Jesus is coming. The answer is you get busy. You begin to serve others in Jesus' name. Blessed is the one that the Lord finds doing that. That's how you get ready. It's amazing. Here's what I loved. When we went to a suit, and we came to this Wesleyan seminary, and there was some 50 or 60 students Many of them not pastors, but professionals, pharmacists, architects, things like that. And the week before we got there, a group, a small group of them had gone into Jordan and they went on a mission trip. Camille took them into Jordan to go into the refugee camps. And here's the reason why. This college seminary has been there for like a hundred years and that seminary had become inward looking they said it's hard enough to be a Christian in Egypt without going somewhere else on a mission I mean we can't even we can barely do what we're doing here and they they got a fortress mentality and they really stopped going to serve but a couple of years ago everything changed you know The Middle East is 
going through radical changes. Many people are coming to Christ. Many people are disillusioned with what's happening with Islam, with all these things. There's much suffering. And they realize this is the moment of opportunity. God has equipped us. We are native-speaking Arabic speakers. We can go with the gospel. And they change and they say, we want to go. And this is the first trip that they took as a missionary outreach. And they went into the refugee camps in Jordan and the doors were swung open to them. The tent flaps were open to them and they shared the love of Christ and the gospel of Christ and people prayed with them. It was amazing. And they came back, they were so exciting and every day they gave, they gave a report of what they had experienced in the stories and they were so fired up, it was beautiful. There was a, a man named Joseph, a pharmacist who spoke really good English who was one who had gone on this trip, and he gave a report. And afterwards, you know, we're talking to him about this, and I don't know how we got on the subject of the Islamic radicals, but somehow we got on it. And Joseph, Adam can confirm this, Joseph is looking at us, and he's standing there with his hand like this making knife motions, actually right towards my stomach, and he's saying, you know, they'll kill you. They will kill you. And he said, this is the creepy part, he says, They'll do it with dead eyes. They'll have dead eyes, nothing in their eyes, and they'll just kill you because that's what they believe they're supposed to do. I'm like, thanks for sharing. That's intense. And I'm thinking, yeah, and you know what? In about three days, I'm getting on a plane and getting out of here. <laughs> and you're going to stay. And then it's like, yeah, next year, I want to go again. <laughs> I want to go again. Next year, Camille's hoping to take a group to Sudan, like a larger group to Sudan. It's amazing. Here's what I love. I love that these people are servants of the Lord, serving others in the name of Jesus, and that's what it means to be ready. So what about us? What is the context that Christ has set you in? That's the context of faithfulness. That's the context of service. It can be in your home. It can be in your marriage. It can be with your friends. It's certainly in your church. It can be in the workplace. It's right here in Portland. But the thing is, don't kick back and coast or say it's too hard. Don't do that. This is the challenge. Jesus says, be dressed, be ready. Let your light shine. Serve in Jesus' name. It's beautiful. Okay. Now it gets intense. Let's read this part in verse 45. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating but the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating, and everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand much more. Well, there it is. Now, what I don't want to do is I don't want to dilute the words of Christ. I read a bunch of sermons on this passage, and in most of them, Someone tried to explain these verses away as if they don't apply to us. Lord, you're talking to us. You're talking to somebody else. Most tried to explain it away. 
But I don't want to dilute the words of Christ. I don't want to tame the words of Christ. These are the words of Christ. As surely as Jesus said, fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He said these words as well. So how, what are we supposed to think? Like when we hear language like this, I asked the question earlier, are you ready for the return of Christ? Well, here's, here's the answer. We must hold both dimensions of the gospel of Christ firmly in our hands. Both dimensions. I read this and I go, wow, it's intense. But then my heart does go back to chapter 12, verse 32. Fear not, little flock. Little flock. I must hear Christ's gracious word, gospel word for my life personally. And I must hear his word of challenge, but I can't separate the two. Can't separate them. And I have a promise for you. If you begin with his great gospel word of grace, you will become the kind of servant who is dressed and ready because it is his grace that moves us to serve him. It is his love that moves us to love others. And so when we feel the love of Christ and the grace of Christ and the gift of Christ and the kingdom and forgiveness and salvation, and we receive these things, freely we receive. We turn around now, it's freely time to give. But if a person says, I don't care about that. I don't care about serving the Lord. I'm not moved in any way to be alert and watching. And I don't really believe in the future or the return of Christ. We have to ask, is that person really a follower of Christ? Isn't that what this is all about? It's like, let's examine ourselves in this. I'm going to let the words of Christ stand. That's a wise decision. And I want you to as well. But I want you to hear these two dimensions of the gospel and to live in both of them that's when the beauty and the power and even the tension of the Christian life, like we live that, and I can guarantee you this, you'll never be bored as a Christian. Let's say a prayer. Thank you, Lord, for the beauty of your heart. We thank you for the beauty of the gospel, this amazing grace, Lord, that is ours in Christ to be known by you, to be called your sheep, your flock, to receive a gift, Lord, of the kingdom. Thank you, Lord. And Lord, we don't want to discount your words either of challenge. We hear them, Lord. Thank you for those. Let us, Lord, be inspired by both your grace and by your challenges and your warnings, Lord. And then help us, Lord, to be the kind of people who live in the moment because of our view of the future. May it transform our lives and transform our world, we ask, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.